This morning's reading is taken from Psalm 84, which we will read in its entirety. This is what Holy Scripture says. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, Selah. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Friends, I want to invite you to take your Bible and open again to Psalm 84. As Paul mentioned last week, once a year we like to do a little mini-series that we call Delighting in God. And the reason why we do this is because we believe it is so central to our Christian faith. And I was excited that this series was beginning because I get to preach my favorite psalm, Psalm 84. And this was supposed to be Paul's series, but I kind of weaseled my way in here just so that I could preach this. Now, what's interesting is that when we think about this whole theme of delighting in God and finding our souls happy in the Lord, you may have noticed that many people will look at Christianity, will look at Christians and think that is one miserable life. Right? People look at what we are, who we are as followers of Jesus, and, and what they see is that you have to give up your freedoms, you have to give up your pleasures, your money, your weekends. Basically, you have to live a life of oppression, you have to give up things, you have to live a life that is boring and, and full of things that you're not allowed to do, and I mean, there is no joy in a life like that, right? And I imagine that is exactly what Satan wants people to think. But William Tyndale was right when he said, the gospel is good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that maketh a man's heart glad and maketh him sing and dance and leap for joy. There's a reason why the news that we believe in is called the good news. It is good for our souls. 
Now, the world has very different, uh, a very different understanding of the pursuit of happiness. It could take on many different forms, right? You could pursue happiness by pursuing a relationship or by pursuing a job, or it might be the pursuit of praise and recognition and accolades or the praise of riches and wealth. I mean, there's just so many things that people pursue in this world in order to find that elusive happiness. But what the Bible clearly teaches us is that the real pursuit of invincible happiness is found in the pursuit of God himself. And what we're going to see today is that very truth in Psalm 84. I want you to take a look with me now at Psalm 84. If you're following along in this ESV version, one of the things you'll notice is the repetition of the word blessed. Right? Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. And then verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. And verse 12. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Do you know what another word for blessed is? It's happy. Many English translations use the word blessed, but but here's how the CSB translates Psalm 84. Verse 4, how happy are those who reside in your house? Verse 5, happy are the people whose strength is in you. Verse 12, happy is the person who trusts in you. To be honest, I like the CSB version a little bit better than I do the English Standard Version because I think it helps people to make sense of what this psalm is about. Here is a psalm that shows us that real happiness is not found in the perishing things of this world, but it is found in the one true living God. Now, if you look at the superscript at the beginning of the psalm, it says, to the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. It's not a psalm of David. It's not a psalm of Moses. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah. And, and that's important to realize. So let, let me just give you a little bit of background context to the psalm. The Korahites were a group of people who were tasked to, to serve in the tabernacle of God. And, and the tabernacle of God is, is where God chose to make his presence known to his people in the Old Testament. And so we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 19, Korahites were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent. In other words, the Korahites served as doorkeepers of the tabernacle, which, if you were following along when Pastor Dwight read this psalm, is a word that comes up in Psalm 84. They served as doorkeepers. Now, one of the, the other things you'll notice is that the psalmist is writing these words from a place of deep longing. He, he, here is someone who served in the tabernacle with joy, but, but he's not where he needs to be. He's not where he wants to be. He's not at the tabernacle serving, singing, and worshiping the Lord. As a matter of fact, he's somewhere far away. But there is a deep, deep yearning to be back in the presence of God. See, these are the words of a homesick man. He's not truly satisfied where he is. And so he's on this pilgrimage. He's on this journey to be in the place where he knows he will find true happiness and true joy. Isn't that feeling of homesickness something that you can all resonate with? I mean, we're often tempted to think that we're going to be happy if only we're in that relationship 
and then we get there and we realize that it's not all that we thought it would be. Or, or if only we get that job, then we're really going to be happy, but then you find yourself discontent and wanting some kind of a change. Or we're only going to be happy if we have this amount of money, but then you realize it is never enough, and as the old saying goes, money cannot buy you true happiness. It doesn't matter if we have all the pleasures of the world in our grasp, there is always something that is missing in our hearts. There's always this void that none of these things can actually fill, and that is because you and I were created not to find happiness in the created things of this world, but in the one true creator God who is the very essence of goodness in the entire universe. Friends, we are all homesick people until we find our home in the Lord. So if you want to find true happiness, then first, long for the presence of God. Look with me at verse 1. The psalmist begins, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. From from a distance, the, the psalmist is pondering what it's like to be in the dwelling place of God. And it's almost like the sense you get is that he has no words to express just how lovely this place is. All he knows is that every single part of him, every fiber of his being wants to be in that place where God is. Just look at verse 2 and notice how he talks about his soul, his heart, and his flesh. In other words, what he's doing here is he's describing his whole being from the inner person to the outer person, from his very soul to his very flesh. There is no part of him that does not desire to be in the house of the Lord. Now, I think it's important to to realize that the psalmist is not talking specifically about the place itself. It's not like he's completely enamored with the physical tabernacle and with the beauty of all the physical objects and artifacts. No, what makes this place so lovely is not the place itself, but the one who dwells there. Look at verse 2 again. The psalmist is not singing to a physical place, but he is singing to a living God. It's not a dwelling place. It is God's dwelling place. It's not a court It's the courts of the Lord. God himself is what makes this place so lovely and so beautiful. And if God were absent, then all of the loveliness would be gone with him. So you see that what the psalmist ultimately desires, what he longs for, what he is yearning for the most in this world is the one true living God. Friends, what about you? Is God the object of your longing? Is is He the one that you desire most in this world? Or are there other things that are competing for your heart's affection? Friends, what I want to make absolutely clear here from this psalm is that nothing in this world will ever bring you the joy and satisfaction that you are looking for apart from the living God. Look at what the psalmist says next in verse 3. As he ponders the dwelling place, he thinks in verse 3, even the sparrows find a home, 
And the swallow, a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Now again, as as a psalmist continues to think about the tabernacle, the meeting place of God, he thinks about how even some birds find a home and a resting place there. Do you know what sparrows were typically known for in this part of the world during this time? Sparrows were a symbol of worthlessness. They were so common that no one really thought much about them or cared much for them. And so when you get to a place like the New Testament and Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And and the point he's trying to make here is that they're they're worthless. They're not worth anything. They're they're cheap. They're the equivalent of pigeons in Toronto downtown. They're, They're just all over the place. They poop on everything. They stand in the way. They're noisy. Nobody likes pigeons in Toronto. Nobody's paying money to keep a pigeon for a pet in their home. What about swallows? Do you know what swallows were typically known for? If sparrows were a symbol of worthlessness, then swallows were a symbol of restlessness. Solomon in Proverbs 26 talks about how the swallows are always flying. They, They were known as birds of freedom that fly continuously without ever stopping and ever being able to settle down. But notice what happens in verse 3. At the altars of the living God, a worthless bird finds a place of belonging, and a restless bird finds a place of rest. Wow. That is such a beautiful picture that shows us something of what the heart of God is like. In his very holy and majestic presence, there is a place for the worthless and the restless to find a home. Now, maybe you're in here today and you're kind of feeling like a worthless sparrow. Or maybe someone has told you your entire life that you are like a worthless sparrow to the point where no one likes you, no one desires you, no one wants to invite you and welcome you into their home. And here is God who says, come, find your home at my altars. Or maybe you feel more like a swallow. You, you're, you're restless in life. You're, you're never satisfied. You're, your heart is never settled. Life is just completely exhausting. And God says to you, come and find your rest at my altars. It's interesting that the psalmist says that the sparrow finds a home and the swallows a place to rest. Verse 3, at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Now, the question we should ask is, why, why does the psalmist specifically talk about the altars of God? Why not the tabernacle? Why not the temple? Why not the dwelling place? Well, well, I believe it's because the psalmist wants us to understand that the function of the altar is essential when it comes to being in the presence of a holy God. What, what I mean is you can't just walk into the presence of God. You can't just walk in there willy-nilly like everything's kosher and everything's cool between you and the Lord. Something else needs to happen, and that something is called a sacrifice. During the days of the Old Covenant, you as an Israelite would have to go to the tabernacle, and and what would happen there was the priest would sacrifice an animal on the altar on your behalf in order to make atonement for your sins. 
And only then were sinners able to draw near to the presence of a holy God. That's what it was like in the days of the old covenant. But for us, we're living in the days of the new covenant, which means that we don't need to go to a specific place and make a sacrifice on a specific altar in order to draw near to God. We need to go by faith to a specific person. Just listen to these verses in the New Testament as I read them out loud loud about how Jesus is the better tabernacle and how Jesus is the better sacrifice. John chapter 1 verse 14, the gospel writer says, and the word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled among us. Matthew chapter 11, verse 26, Jesus speaking of himself says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Ephesians 2, 18, for through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to who? It's the Father. It is only by Christ that we have access to the Father. You see, the reason why we don't need to go to a place and make continual sacrifices on a physical altar is because Jesus Christ made the ultimate sacrifice on the altar of the cross. And this was a once and for all sacrifice. And by coming to Jesus and believing in a sacrificial death, every worthless and restless sinner and sinners of all kinds can enter into the presence of God and find rest, eternal, real, joyful rest for their souls in Him. To be in the presence of God is not a sorrowful experience. It's not the miserable life that some unbelievers think it is. On the contrary, look at what the psalmist says in verse 4. Blessed. Here's the first occurrence of the word blessed. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Pause and think about that. In other words, happy are those who reside in the presence of God who is altogether wonderful and altogether beautiful. If you want to be made right with the Lord, if you want to experience the all-satisfying presence of a holy God, the one who gives the worthless a home and the restless a place to rest, then come to Jesus. Come to Jesus in faith. He is the only way to enter into the joy-filled presence of the living God. Jesus is our destination for true happiness. He is the only destination for true happiness. And if we have Christ, then in one sense we can say that we have reached our destination. We've crossed that that finish line and we have found true happiness. But there is another sense in which we can say that the journey still goes on. Life here, even as a Christian, it's still a journey, right? It's still a journey until we get to that final glory and we see our Savior, not with the eyes of faith, but with our real eyes, and we see him face to face. And I think you know exactly what I mean by that. 
this broken world does not feel like home. These last two years have made that very clear. We are not in our final home. We are still on a journey. We are still on a pilgrimage through this world that is filled with pain, suffering, trials, adversity, viruses, and wars. But friends, make no mistake, there is great, great joy to be found in the journey itself as we learn to lean and depend on the strength that God provides. So here's point number two. Find your strength in God. First blessed was in verse four. Here's the second blessed in verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Happiness isn't isn't found in an easy, comfortable journey to our final home and to our final destination. I mean, sometimes, honestly, we, we think that life would be truly happy if life wasn't such an uphill battle. But when you think that way, you miss the fact that there is a unique joy to be found in a difficult journey, especially as you experience the strength of God carrying you through all the way. If life was just a pleasant walk in the park on a sunny day, then you know what that's like. You know when life is easy, when you have all the, your, your, your ducks in a row, you're not thinking much about God. You're not thinking much about your weakness and your need for God's strength. But it's the very challenges and the hardships of the journey that expose our weakness and remind us that we are in desperate need of the Lord every day. And it's actually in that place of weakness when we are brought low that we find joy as we learn to lean on God's strength. So how does one actually find strength in the Lord? We, 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 we hear a lot about finding your strength in God in the Bible, but what does that actually look like? How do you practically find your strength in the Lord? Well, it begins by first acknowledging your weakness. It's coming to terms with the reality that you do not have the strength in yourself to do what you need to do. And then it means going to the Lord, turning to Him in humble prayer and asking Him for His strength. And then it's believing in all of your heart that he is for you and that he is with you. And then you go. You go and you walk in obedience to his will and his word and you watch God's faithfulness as you trust in him. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The one who is able to acknowledge his weakness and the one who is able to turn to the Lord and find their strength in Him. Happy are those who humbly depend on the Lord for strength. But look at how verse 5 goes on. He says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. If, If you could look into the kind of heart the psalmist is describing here, what you would see is a single minded focus on being with the Lord. There there are no detours or other roads in this heart's desires and affection. This is a heart that is fully and completely oriented to the Lord. Now, when you meet someone who is like this, whose heart is a highway to the Lord, a highway to Zion, here's the effect they have on their surroundings. Verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, The early rain covers it with pools. 
Now, the Valley of Baca is a very interesting terminology. We don't, we don't see it anywhere else in the Bible. We actually don't know if he's referring to a specific place. But the Valley of Baca in its original language sounds a lot like the Valley of Weeping. It's a place that symbolizes desolation and sadness. It's an arid place that is lacking in life, kind of like a scorched wilderness or a dry, lifeless desert. But when you have a person who is depending on the Lord and delighting in God, when that kind of a person goes through this parched, lifeless, and dead land, it says they make it a place of springs. The image you get here is of a rainfall that covers a desert and turns it into a beautiful, vibrant, green, life-giving paradise. This is symbolic of the effect that happy Christians have on their surroundings. Even though we're coming out of this pandemic, the reality is we're still living in a broken and desolate world. The reality is that our journey here on earth is still filled with seasons of walking through the valley of Baca again and again and again. And there are people around us every day and every week who are feeling discouraged and defeated. There are people around us every day who are brokenhearted and weeping over their circumstances, and maybe some of those people are sitting beside you right now. And do you know what they need from you? They need you to be walking in the strength of God with a heart that is fully devoted to the Lord because that kind of life is nourishing to the souls of others. I mean, haven't you experienced this before in your own life? You meet a Christian who is just so in love with God, so humbly dependent on his strength, and being around such a person is so encouraging and it strengthens your heart. Brothers and sisters, be that kind of a Christian. If you want to have a ministry of serving others in the church, that's not only found in the formal ministries, it's being the kind of Christian who is always walking in humility and prayerfully seeking the strength of God. It's about being the kind of believer who loves God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Grace Fellowship Church, what's our vision? When we are delighting in God to the glory of God, that is good for all people. When our hearts are right with God, when our souls are satisfied in the living God to his glory, that is a blessing to the people around us. That is what our broken world needs. That is what our brothers and sisters need from us to be truly delighting in God. Friends, if you live this way, depending on the Lord and fully delighting in Him, not only will you find your souls happy and not only will you be a blessing to those around you, but God will give you the grace to endure in this journey until the very end where you see him face to face. Those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion, verse seven, they, those kinds of people, go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. We look at the kind of world that we're living in and our spiritual pilgrimage sounds exhausting. It is not easy to be a Christian in this world. 
but Christians who find their strength in the Lord will never run out of energy regardless of how hard our spiritual pilgrimage is. That's what it means to go from strength to strength. And the idea is you go from strength to strength to strength to strength. You just keep going. And when you think about it, when you're tapping into the infinite power of God, how can you ever run out of strength? How can you ever truly run out of energy when you are tapped in to unlimited power? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30, the prophet writes, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. That is true for those who wait on the Lord, who find their strength in Him. In spite of every valley of Baca and every mountain of trouble, the Lord in His strength will carry you until you reach that final heavenly Zion. So if you want to find true happiness, long for the presence of God. Find your strength in God, and lastly, trust in the promises of God. What the psalmist does here in verse 8 is he, it's like he's transitioning from musings about the dwelling place of God to the reality now of his own situation. It's almost like he was dreaming about that happy place with all of those happy people, and then suddenly he, he snaps back to reality, and he cries out with a loud voice, verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Now, you may have noticed the title, Lord of hosts. It's, it's another word that's repeated three times in this psalm along with blessed. We see it in verse 1, in verse 8, and in verse 12. And what the Lord of hosts means is that, that God is the God of all the heavenly armies. It, it's, a, it's a title that, that symbolizes his strength and his supremacy and his almighty power. But in verse 8, the psalmist also cries out to God as the God of Jacob, which also tells us something about God. If you remember Jacob, he was basically the worst of all the patriarchs. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. He somehow wrestled with God, and yet God still showed mercy to Jacob. And not only that, he actually entered into a covenant relationship with Jacob. And so what we need to understand is that when the psalmist is praying here, he is acknowledging God as the all-powerful one, but also the one who is all-merciful. And to this great God, he prays in verse 9, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. What that means is the psalmist is praying for God to look with favor on the face of the Messiah. That, that, that's what your anointed means. It's a reference to the Messiah, God's chosen deliverer. And so when the psalmist is writing this, he is very likely referring to a Davidic king, a king from the line of David. The, the, the people of Israel, we see this all across the Psalms, the people of Israel would pray specifically that the Lord would bless the king, would show favor to the king, because to bless the king means to bless the people. 
If the king were to fall in his reign, or if he were to fail in his mission, then that would leave the people leaderless and vulnerable to the, the, the attacks of others. And so the king functions as a shield for his people, which is why the psalmist prays, behold our shield, the holy anointed one. Now, as we read this text from where we are today, on this side of the cross, we understand this ultimately to be a prayer for the Lord to look upon the face of Jesus Christ, who is God's holy anointed and promised deliverer. And the beauty of where we are today, reading this psalm, is that we can be grateful knowing that God answered this prayer fully in Jesus Christ. Jesus did not fail in his mission, nor did Jesus fall from his reign. Through his death on the cross, he conquered over Satan, sin, and death. And and the wonderful news we have is that God did not leave Christ in the grave. He did not abandon his, his soul to Sheol. Rather, he raised him up on the third day and seated him at his right hand to rule and reign in a kingdom that will be forever. God the Father has looked with favor and blessing upon his Messiah, Christ our King. And as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 1.3, he, God, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And because of this wonderful truth, the psalmist says next, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. When the psalmist compares a day, just a single day in the presence of God, compared to to a thousand days anywhere else in the world, he says there is no comparison. There is no real comparison. Even if the most favorable places with, with all the world's pleasures were within our grasp, none of it would compare and be better than the joy of being even, even a lowly servant in the house of God. Right? That's where the psalmist goes next. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, remember, we talked about how the Korahites served as doorkeepers in the temple of God. And just think about that, being a doorkeeper, standing outside of the tent, opening the door for people. Let's be honest, that doesn't sound like the most glamorous ministry in the world, right? I mean, when you compare it, there, there are other ministries that look far more attractive and appear far more superior and important. Well, if you think of that way, let me tell you about a story of a man who thought the exact same way, and let me tell you what happened to him. Many of you will be familiar with the story. It comes from Numbers chapter 16, and it's about Korah's rebellion. Do you know who Korah is? Korah is the father of the ones who wrote this very psalm, along with, along with ten other psalms. Right? Remember, we're going back to the superscript. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Well, in Numbers chapter 16, we read the story about how Korah and his people rebelled against Moses and Aaron because they didn't want to serve as inferior temple servants. No, no, no. What they wanted 
was the, the mighty priesthood of Aaron. They, they didn't want this insignificant thing. They wanted the important priesthood of Aaron. And, and, and Moses responds and he pleads and he, and he urges with them to realize that it is no small thing to be set apart to serve in the house of God. It's no small thing. It is a great privilege that you can actually be in a place where you are so close to the presence of the Lord. But refusing to listen to any of this, Korah and his people continue to rebel, and this is what happened to them. Numbers chapter 16, verse 31. The ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. Because of the pride of Korah and his people, they were all wiped out. But it's interesting because if you actually keep reading in the book of Numbers and you get to chapter 26, we find out that there is an important detail that wasn't included in Numbers chapter 16. As the author continues to write, he he mentions the exact same events and then in Numbers chapter 26, verse 11, it says, but the sons of Korah did not die. Everyone else was wiped out. All the Korahites were wiped out except the sons of Korah. And then we continue reading in the chronology and we see that the sons went on serving in the house of God with humble and glad hearts. See, the difference between what happened to Korah and his sons should remind us all that it is far better to serve the Lord in the house of righteousness than to sin against him in the house of evil. And sadly, Korah did the latter. He did the second. He sinned against the Lord in the house of evil, and he was met with swift judgment and complete destruction. But the sons of Korah, who served as humble doorkeepers, had the great joy of serving the Lord and being near his life-giving, joy-producing presence. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He wrote, To bear burdens and open doors for the Lord is more honor than to reign among the wicked. Every man has a choice, and this is ours. God's worst is better than the devil's best. God's worst is better than the devil's best. It is far better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in luxury in the tents of wickedness. The prince of preachers was right. Every man has a choice. Every single one of us has a choice. We can either choose to be proud like Korah and sin against God and dwell in the tents of wickedness, or we can choose to be like the humble sons of Korah who chose to serve the Lord with joy. Friends, be like the sons of Korah. Don't be like the father. Wherever God has you, whether that's on the the host team, the early years ministry, the band, prayer, preaching, serving, speaking, giving, whatever it is, whatever ministry it is, formal or informal, serve faithfully and know the joy of being near to God. Our Christian pilgrimage is not an easy one. 
you know this, that our journey often feels like we are going through enemy territory and in the spiritual darkness of the night. But we can still take heart and be glad when we trust in who God is and what he does for his people. That's where the psalmist goes next, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. Now, first we see that God is a sun. God is the sun. The sun produces heat and gives warmth on a cold day. It also produces light to illuminate the path before us so we know where we're to go. Not only that, God is a shield, and a shield has one primary function. That is defense. A shield protects you from the attacks of the enemy, and it keeps you safe. So this is who God is. He is a sun above us and a shield all around us. What better to have in a spiritual pilgrimage in this broken world. Not only that, God bestows favor, which is really another word for grace. God gives grace to his people, and God bestows honor, which is another word for glory, probably most likely referring to the future glory that will be ours when Christ comes to take us home. But then there's one more thing that the psalmist adds here. At the end of verse 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly with him. No good thing. What does that mean to you? We need to be super careful here because it doesn't mean that God is going to just give you millions of dollars and, and a luxurious house with an expensive car. It also doesn't necessarily mean that God is going to give you that job or that relationship or that status and recognition that you really desire. Sometimes what we think is good for us isn't actually good for us, and praise God that he knows it better than we do. The Lord, in his infinite wisdom, might actually give you more trials, and he might actually place you in more valleys of Baca. But even, even if that is the case, we have this sacred promise in the word of God that he works all things together for what? For good, he works all things, and that truly means all things together for good. What you may have noticed here is that the Lord's goodness comes with a condition. It says, you must walk uprightly. Now, that, this, this doesn't mean perfection, right? We, we, we understand that much. The, the only one who was perfect and sinless was Jesus, but what this does mean is walking with integrity. It means not being double-minded. It means not having your heart split up and divided. It means walking with a clear conscience before the Lord. And when you sin, it means going to the Lord and confessing that sin and asking for his forgiveness. And it means walking in obedience and trusting in his ways. When we walk uprightly with integrity, by the strength that God provides, there is truly no good thing, no real good thing that the Lord withholds from his people. Again, we need to be careful that we don't understand this to mean that God is just going to give us everything that we want in this world. In the context of this psalm, we learn that all good things, all the good things that God gives us is his presence, 
his strength, his light, his protection, his grace, his glory. Do you know what all those things have in common? It all belongs to God. It's all a part of who God is. In other words, God gives us more of himself because he is the very essence of all that is good. Brothers and sisters, there is great joy to be had when you're faithfully walking with your God because God is the one that you are walking with, and He is the greatest good in the entire universe and beyond. And so the psalmist ends with these words in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed, happy is the one who trusts in you. Even if the Lord should lead you into places you do not want to go, and even if the Lord should take from you that which is precious in your sight, happy is the heart that lays aside the doubt, remembers who God is, and truly takes him at his word. Dear friends, turn away from your sins and trust in the living God. As I've been saying throughout this entire sermon, sin will never satisfy your longing hearts. Your affections, your, your love was designed for something or rather someone much greater than anything this world can ever offer you. You can find happiness or you can pursue happiness in many different ways and many have and many will fall into pursuing happiness in the perishing things of this world and if that's you, then I promise you, you will always have that feeling of homesickness. But if you want to truly pursue everlasting happiness, then pursue God. Long for his presence. Find your strength in him and trust in his unfailing and good promises. Let's pray. Father, we are so very thankful that you are the greatest good in the entire universe. There is no one and nothing that compares to you. And the great joy that we have is, Lord, you are not far off. You are not keeping your distance from your people. You have not pushed yourself away from us, all of us who are undeserving. Rather, you draw near and you invite us to come in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us, every single one of us in here, would pursue that invincible happiness by pursuing you. And as we carry on in this journey, in our spiritual pilgrimage, give us much grace to find our strength in you and to trust, truly trust, in your unfailing promises. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.